and conversations that Jesus had with men and women in the Gospel of John. And last Sunday, we looked at a conversation between Jesus and a paralyzed man beside uh, a pool of water. And we heard Jesus ask him, and I hope we heard Jesus ask us, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Uh, Today, we're going to be in John chapter 6, looking at a conversation Jesus had uh, with a whole crowd of people. And as we look at this conversation, uh, I'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along uh, there if you like. You'll notice a lot of people follow along either in a Bible app or a paper Bible. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible, but you don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisle right now uh, with, with Bibles. And if you'll just signal them somehow, they'd be happy uh, to put one in your hands. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, please feel free to take this one with you. Before we uh, look at this story together, let's, let's pray. Father, as we engage with this conversation Jesus has with this crowd, uh, we come recognizing our own need. And so we pray what we know not Teach us what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. That is an old Anglican prayer that I think sums up so wonderfully how we need to come to the Lord. Uh, John chapter 6 is by far the longest chapter in John's gospel. Uh, Some have questioned, are the chapter divisions right? Couldn't they have made it a little shorter? But I I think they're actually uh, good uh, because all of the stories in chapter 6 really relate to one another. But it can make it a little difficult to cover in a Sunday sermon. So we're going to have to move right along here. Uh, As I said earlier, the focus this morning is going to be on a conversation Jesus had with a whole crowd of people Uh, That happens in the last part of the chapter. I need to set up that conversation with the first two parts uh, of chapter 6. So John begins chapter 6 by telling us that Jesus and his disciples have crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Some of your translations might say the lake. Um, uh, It's a big, big lake, about seven miles across. Um, And and Jesus and his disciples have crossed over uh, to the other side, uh, we think from west to east, and that a large crowd followed Jesus because he's been doing these miracles, these miraculous signs, as John calls them. And probably most everyone here is somewhat familiar with this story at the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus asks Philip, uh, one of the twelve, where they can buy food to feed this crowd. And Philip says that even if they had 200 silver coins equaling 200 days labor wages, there wouldn't be enough to feed all of these people. John tells us that there were 5,000 men in the crowd, but if you add in women and children, we're probably talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people, right? And, and uh, Andrew goes out, he's going to be resourceful, he goes out to see what they've got available. So he goes out and finds a little boy 
who has five barley loaves. Barley is significant because that's the, that's the bread of the poor. Okay, so he finds five barley loaves and, and two probably dried uh, fish. Uh, but, of course, that's not, gonna, that's not even going to make a dent uh, in feeding this large crowd. But Jesus has the crowd sit down and, and he gives thanks to God for these five uh, rolls and, and two fish. And then he has the disciples begin to distribute that among the crowd. And the miracle was, as most of you know, that there was enough food for everyone. Um, everyone, we're told, ate their fill. And miraculously, there were 12 baskets full left over after, after they had, had eaten. And then John tells us something very interesting in verses 14 and 15 that, that we'll probably come back to a little bit later. He says that when the people saw the miraculous sign, they said, this certainly is the prophet who is to come into this world. Now, the prophet, when when we see that, that's referring to the Messiah. This was something that Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 18, referring to the Messiah. Uh, In in verse 15, John tells us that Jesus knew that the crowd intended to seize him. They wanted to kidnap him, is is what the word means. Take him by force and make him their political king. Um, This is something people still try to do today. Uh, they're, They're trying still to force Jesus to fit into their agendas. Some of those are political agendas, some of them are social agendas, uh, some of them are economic or even relationship agendas. But but one thing we learn here, and and I've said this before, Jesus will not be co-opted by our agendas. He won't do it. And if you try, he disappears. He goes away. Uh, you, you might still have his name uh, slapped on a sticker on your, your agenda, but he's not there anymore. That's what he does when we try to co-opt him into our agendas. And so Jesus disappears higher up the mountain, John says, and he sends the 12 back across the lake. And that's the end of scene one in John 6. There's a lot in there that that we could unpack another day, but we're moving, remember, toward a conversation with uh, these same people a little later in the chapter. Scene two in chapter six is another really familiar story to us. Uh, The 12 disciples get into a boat and they head west now out across the lake toward Capernaum. It's dark, um, as often happens on that lake. A, A storm came up and John tells us that they were rowing against the storm. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, which is about halfway across the middle of this huge lake, they saw Jesus coming toward them, walking on top of the water. And John tells us that they were terrified. Phobiomai is the word that he uses. They They were paralyzed in their fear. And then Jesus speaks. There in the middle of the storm, he speaks. And our English translations kind of try to smooth it out a little because it's, it's 
It's sort of strange language, but literally Jesus says, I am, do not fear. Have we heard those words, I am, before? Yeah. Um, Most Bible scholars agree that Jesus is making a statement here that, that points back to Exodus when Moses asked God to tell him his name. And God said, my name is I am. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. And the way we pronounce that name, those two words, is Yahweh. We've, we've talked about that before. But when Jesus speaks, I am, the fear is gone. The disciples welcome him into the boat. And then something miraculous happens. Not only did Jesus walk on water, but immediately they are at their destination. How'd that happen? Don't know. But John says it happened. And he was probably in the boat. Right? That's the end of scene two. Scene three of chapter six, uh, we come to the conversation that is our focus for today. And John gives us a bit of a transition into the conversation by telling us in verses 22 to 24 that the crowd who had been fed on the hillside went searching for Jesus. Uh, And after searching for a while, they end up getting into boats and going to Capernaum where they find Jesus and the twelve. And we pick up the conversation then in verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I think this is one of those questions that you can't take at face value. They, they ask, when did you get here? But it seems that what they really want to know is, how? How did you get here? He didn't leave in the boat with the disciples. They, they, they knew that. Uh, he, he didn't walk around the lake to the other side. That would have taken far too long. How did you get here? And Jesus doesn't really answer the question that they speak, but he immediately gets to the heart of why they have really come looking for him. Verse 26, Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread you wanted. So Jesus begins his answer here with what the old King James Bible translated as verily, verily. Some of you remember that that phrase. Verily, verily. Truly, truly is, is how it shows up in other translations. Most assuredly in some other translations here. Jesus is saying, let there be no mistake about why you're really here. Okay? You're here because yesterday you gorged yourselves like a bunch of pigs, and now you want more. And that's, that's really not pushing the language too far here, except maybe for the pig. But, but they gorged themselves, and now they want more. You probably remember in some of the previous conversations we've seen that these miracles that that John records are supposed to be signs, right? Uh, That signs that that point to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is saying here in verse 26 that they've missed what the sign was pointing to and become fascinated with the sign itself. 
It'd be sort of like seeing a sign on the highway announcing that there's this spectacular viewpoint ahead, right? But instead of taking the exit to see the actual viewpoint, you pull over and you marvel at how beautiful the sign is. Look at that font they chose. It's, it's, it's so clear and easy to read. Or, or maybe, look at that logo that represents the Grand Canyon. Isn't, wow. These people were focused on the sign and not what the sign was pointing to. Jesus continues with advice, maybe even a warning in verse 27. Don't work for the food that disappears. Some translations say spoils, doesn't last. But work for the food that remains to eternal life. The food which the Son of Man will give you. For God the Father has put his seal of approval on him. Now this statement has some echoes of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, if, if you drink the water uh, that's in this well, you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink of the water that I have for you, you'll get eternal life. And here instead of water, Jesus is talking about food, which the Son of Man offers. That's how Jesus refers to himself here. Son of man was uh, the way that the prophet Daniel referred to the Messiah. And so uh, referring to himself, Jesus says that God the Father has put his seal of approval on the Son of Man, on Jesus. Okay? Initially, the response from the crowd seems sort of promising. They say in verse 28, what must we do to accomplish the deeds God requires? Jesus replied, this is the deed God requires, to believe in the one whom he sent. Again, the Son of Man. Now the crowd wants to know what they have to do to please God. And, and Jesus takes their question and, and slightly alters it in his answer. He says, the only deed that God requires is to believe in the Messiah. If you, if you want to use language of, of deeds and works, okay. But the only deed you need to do is to believe in the one God has sent, whom we know to be Jesus himself. Um, some Bible scholars point out that, that the word believe seems to be one of John's favorite words. Uh, in all of the New Testament, the word believe shows up uh, about 250 times. Almost half of those are in John's writings. Uh, he really likes this word, believe. Nine of them are in this conversation, just the, the, the last part of chapter 6. Um, the, the, the whole purpose of John writing this book is so that people would believe. I don't think I've done this yet in, in, our, in our study here in, in John's Gospel, but uh, look at John 20. You can turn there if you want. I'll have it on the screen. It's almost at the very end of John's Gospel. He says this, Now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. A little bit of a spoiler alert here, right? All of these conversations we're listening in on, all of the miraculous signs we are seeing in this book, all of them are meant to cause us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the very Son of God. And that by believing in him, we can have life, real life, everlasting life. And we need to understand that whenever John uses the word believe, he's not talking about some just sort of mental acknowledgement that Jesus existed or that he was a good man who gave us a good example of, of how we should live. That won't do. When John uses the word believe, he's talking about putting your complete trust in Jesus for your very existence. Because according to John and, and Jesus, life itself depends on this. Okay? That's, that's John's whole purpose in writing this book and in sharing these conversations and the miraculous signs that Jesus did. So let's go back to John 6. See how John unpacks this. Conversation continues. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what miraculous sign will you perform so that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is what Daniel read from earlier. What an incredible statement. Less than 25, 24 hours earlier, Jesus had given the miraculous sign of multiplying five little barley rolls and, and two dried fish into a feast for upwards of 20,000 people. And their response at the time was to declare that Jesus was the prophet that Moses promised and to try to force him to be their king. Here, 24 hours later, they want another sign. What are you going to do to prove it to us? Then Jesus told them, I tell you the solemn truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, this is Jesus' second solemn truth, verily, verily, statement in this passage. The crowd is, is still focused on the miraculous signs and they're missing what the sign was pointing to. Jesus wants them to see that the manna that God fed them, uh, fed their ancestors in the wilderness, is really no different than the bread that, that he gave them the day before. It was a sign but the true bread from heaven, the true bread of God, is the one who came down from heaven and is offering them eternal life. He's standing right in front of them. And then, kind of like the woman at the well, they still aren't getting it. So they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread all the time. I think that's an interesting statement because that's exactly what Jesus is offering. But they haven't figured out yet what he's talking about. So Jesus gets even more direct with them. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. I mentioned John's word, uh, love for the word believe. There's another term that as we go through John's gospel, we should keep our eyes and ears open to. Uh, 23 times, Jesus says, I am. We saw one of those in scene two of this chapter when Jesus was walking on the water during the storm. He said, I am, do not be afraid. There are seven times that Jesus makes an I am statement that is attached to a metaphor. Many of you have heard these before. There are seven of them in John's gospel. He will say, I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the door in John 10. I am the good shepherd. Again, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. I am the true vine, John 15. And here in John 6, we have the first of those seven I am metaphors. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I was thinking it's kind of hard for us maybe to understand the significance of this statement in this gluten intolerant world we live in today. Sorry. I mean, I get what he's saying because I feel like I could live on a, on a diet of just bread. I love it right? Uh, recently at one of our shared meals here at the church, I said something to that effect. And one person quoted the Bible verse that man cannot live on bread alone. And someone else came to my rescue and said, that's why God made butter. <laughs> and to that I say, amen, amen, amen. But not all of you feel that way about bread, but you need to know that in the ancient world and in some cultures even today, bread is the central item at every meal. It's the most important staple in the diet. And Jesus is speaking into that kind of a culture when he says, I am the bread of life. Of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. I say, of course, we should understand that. Um, he, he means that he is the source of nourishment for our souls. He says that anyone who comes to him will never be spiritually hungry. Anyone who believes in him will never be spiritually thirsty. And then in verse 36, Jesus speaks this word of judgment on them. He, he repeats what he's been trying to say to them already. You, you have the Messiah standing in front of you. You've seen the miraculous signs, but still you don't believe. And for those who don't believe, for those who don't put their trust in him, they're destined to a life of, of spiritual hunger and thirst. And, and, and ultimately an eternity apart from the one who gives life. 
Well, verses 37 to 46 uh, shed some light on how this belief works. And I can't take time to unpack it verse by verse in this section, but it's an important section. So let me just highlight two pretty major themes here. First, we need to see here that the Father is the one who draws us to Jesus. Verse 37, everyone whom the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. Okay, so, so the Father is at work here. And if, if you're here this morning and something in you is, is beginning to be attracted to who Jesus is and, and what his offer is of satisfying your deepest longings, hungers, thirsts, it's because God is actually working in you to draw you to Jesus. Don't resist that. We have a responsibility to, to, to follow that drawing, that, that calling, but it's God who stirs that in us. Don't ignore it. The second truth that we see woven uh, throughout this, this section is that all who come to Jesus will most certainly be raised to eternal life. Verse 37, the one who comes to me, I will never send away. I will never cast out. Verse 39, I will not lose one person of everyone he has given to me, but I will raise them all up at that last day. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him to have eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day. 44, to everyone who comes, I will raise him up on the last day. Resurrection's a strong theme here, okay? 47, I tell you the solemn truth. Verily, verily, truly, truly, know this. The one who believes in me has eternal life. Jesus only ever does the will of his Father, and the Father's will is that Jesus fulfill this promise of eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. You can take that to the bank. Well, not literally. I'm speaking metaphorically, okay? The bank won't know what to do with that. But it's a really important truth that you can count on. So back to the conversation. Verse 41, John tells us that the Jews began complaining or grumbling about the things Jesus was saying. Sound familiar? Exodus 15. They grumbled. Numbers 11 tells the same story. And God says to, to Israel, you're going to be so sick of this stuff, it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. But here you go. Here's your bread. The Jews were grumbling about Moses. Here they're grumbling about Jesus. Verse 48, Jesus repeats his I am statement again. I am the bread of life, he said. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Did they live forever? No, they died. This is the bread that has come down from heaven so that a person may eat from it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The crowd is sort of demanding a sign like the manna that their ancestors ate in the wilderness. And Jesus has already said that they should be seeking bread that lasts, not bread that perishes. He's saying it again here, slightly different way. The bread your ancestors ate didn't last, and neither did they. They all ate it, and they all died, right? And then he says that the bread from heaven isn't like that. When you eat the bread from heaven, you won't ever die we got a couple of memorial services coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I actually forgot to mention that. It's in your worship folder. Uh, we're going to be gathering for a uh, time to remember Bill Hooper, who went to be with Jesus this week. Uh, we're going to gather on Saturday for that, and then the following Saturday we're going to gather to remember Jennifer's mom, Nancy and do the same. But both of these people had put their trust in Jesus. They had both eaten, if we can use Jesus' terms here, of the bread of life. And while their physical bodies died, their souls, that, that part of them that is the part that we love and know it's the part of Bill that smiled out through his face, right? That part of them lives on. One day they'll be given new bodies that will live forever. When Jesus says those who eat the bread from heaven won't die, that's what he means. Verse 51, Jesus says, The bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. This is starting to sound a little weird, maybe to some of you. But what Jesus is, is talking about here is his sacrifice on the cross. His own body will be given so that we can live forever. The crowd that Jesus is talking to just isn't getting this. They're thinking in, in literal terms, not spiritual terms. And as they keep pressing their dullness on Jesus, Jesus pushes back even harder on the truth that he's teaching. And it gets really weird, okay? At that, verse 52, the Jews argued among themselves... How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Kind of like when Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who consumes me will live because of me. Well, the fourth time now in this conversation, Jesus says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Unless you take this bread of life in you, you have no life in yourselves. Now Jesus has equated belief and trust in him with with eating this bread. He's given us some hints along the way what he means here to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So another way we could say this is unless you are relying on me and my sacrifice for you on the cross, you are going to die. You can't live without that. His sacrifice is the true spiritual food that we need. And when we take what he offers into us, when we let him reside, the living Christ reside in us, that's when we will truly live. You see? But the crowd didn't see. Literally, they, they thought Jesus was talking about cannibalism here. To them, it sounded pretty creepy. And if that was what Jesus was talking about, it is creepy, right? The early church was accused of cannibalism. That's what, that's what people thought was, was going on. But that's not what Jesus is saying. We, in part, we know that uh, because down in verse 63, Jesus says that it's the Spirit that gives life. He says that the words he is speaking our spirit and life. He's using spiritual metaphors. But the crowd doesn't see it. They're spiritually blind. They're offended by Jesus' words. And John tells us in verse 66 that many of Jesus' disciples quit following him that day. And then Jesus turns to the twelve. And he asks them if they want to leave too. And this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Peter responds with uh, what can only have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, God helped him to see this. He says, Lord, to whom were, would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God, another way of saying the Messiah. And we know, uh, if we've read our Bibles, that Peter will go through some tough times in his devotion to Jesus. Sometimes Jesus will even rebuke him so harshly that he calls Peter the devil himself. Sometimes Peter will falter in his faith, sinking in the storms of life or even denying that he ever knew Jesus. And this is why I think, 
I hear deep emotion in Peter's voice and his answer. Peter doesn't say, no way! Those people are idiots. I completely understand what you're talking about, Jesus. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And somehow God has allowed Peter to know that Jesus is the Messiah and put his trust in him. I love it. This is a, a long conversation that we've looked at this morning. Um, and before we end, just like I've done each week, I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it in, in this conversation that we need to hear? Uh, we're not... Just, we're not just listening in. We're not just eavesdropping. Jesus is saying something here that we need to hear. How, do, how does this conversation inform our own conversations with Jesus? See if I can help us see the, the bottom line of what Jesus is, is getting at in this long conversation. Remember that the context of this conversation began with Jesus' miraculous sign of, of multiplying bread. And that is why the crowd sought him out in the first place. That's why they went looking for him. And so Jesus takes that context of that miraculous sign of, of multiplying bread he, he takes actually what the people are asking for and he uses it as a metaphor for something much, much bigger. And Jesus does a couple of things with that metaphor. First, he, he points ahead to when he will give up his life so that we could live. And he equates belief or trust in that sacrifice with eating the bread of life. Now, the crowd doesn't get it. They say uh, in verse 60 that this teaching is too hard. I wonder if you can see that it's really their hearts that are hard. So what about us this morning? When, when we're faced with this offer of, of bread of life that has come down from heaven, when we understand that Jesus, through his sacrifice for us, is offering all of us eternal life, when we hear him say that anyone who comes to him will never be hungry and anyone who believes in him will never be uh, thirsty, what is our answer? Will we say this is creepy? This is, this is too hard of a teaching? It's too exclusive? I'm out of here? Or will we, like Peter, say, you alone have the words of life. Where else would I go? You're the Messiah who has come down from heaven. 
I'm going to invite us all just to, to bow our heads for a moment. And I just, I want to ask you to just picture Jesus making that offer to you. He says, stop seeking for food that perishes, food that doesn't satisfy, food that leaves you hungry. What are those things in your life that leave you hungry? It's probably not literal bread, but what is it? Job? Status? Money? A relationship that you keep hoping is going to be the answer and it keeps lacking? Whatever it is, can you, can you see this morning that it's not really the answer? It's not the true bread. It, it won't ever satisfy And then let me ask you to hear Jesus saying to you, let me satisfy your deepest longings. Put your trust in me. Believe that I am. I am who I say I am. I am the bread that will satisfy What's your answer to that? I'll just give you a moment of silence to wrestle with that and answer him from your heart. What would your answer be? Father in heaven, I, I pray in this moment, right now, that you would be drawing everyone in this room, everyone who is listening, draw them to Jesus. And Jesus, I thank you for your promise that everyone who comes to you will be given eternal life and raised on that last day. And until that day, I know that you will keep us in your care. Thank you for that. Amen.